Welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. I have here with me Dan Conda, my brother, my homie Dan, who is a Vipassana meditator of seven years, a member of Golden Drum, and Dan is a self-proclaimed mushroom maniac. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I said, Dan, are you a mycologist? Are you a medicinal mushroom grower? And he said, just say I'm a mushroom maniac. <laughs> so I said, okay, cool. It's the closest thing. <laughs> closest thing. It works. Yeah, Dan is a very good friend of mine. I first met Dan actually in Israel at a meditation in Tel Aviv. We were at a olive farm outside of Tel Aviv, not in Tel Aviv. That'd be kind of weird for an olive farm in Tel Aviv. And uh, we connected right away because you not only did Vipassana, but you also were up in Ladakh. And Ladakh is like one of my most favorite places I've ever been. It's in India. It's up in on the border of Pakistan and China. And when I say China, I mean Tibet. It's not really uh, China. It's occupied by China. It's one of the most magical, mystical places on Earth. Uh, they call it Little Tibet because uh, it is a place where Tibetan culture has been preserved. And anyone who's been there, I feel, has received something very special. It's an extremely powerful place. So I have Dan here with me. And Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, podcast. No problem. So I think the first thing that we wanted to kind of get into before we just started rambling on about Ladakh, because <laughs> I can do that for a long time, I wanted to drop in with you about your meditation experience and your uh, work with that, because I know that we connected right away about the pasta when we met in Israel uh, back in 2016, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, would you like to share a little bit about how you got introduced into Vipassana and uh, Buddhism in general? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, like a lot of people, you know, some people just start getting attracted to meditation and they don't really know why. So, you know, I was kind of struggling with my life, not really, you know, doing the right things, you know, looking for love, but in all the wrong places. <laughs> <laughs> and uh my stepfather he took a 10-day retreat and i never heard of this before but as soon as i heard of that my mind was just blown i was like wow like that exists like that sounds so incredible so i just immediately started like googling and researching and i found this place in damodara um, in massachusetts the vipassana center and i it's free it's completely free what I don't believe this so I just signed up and um, I got in and I went like not knowing anything about it and it just totally you know just transformed my entire life and completely gave me a new perspective you know for just being um, you know totally took me out of the I guess conventional mindset of chasing, you know, sensual pleasures and, you know, making money and, you know, it just gave me a new, a new way. So I'm really, really grateful, you know, to Dhamma and to, you know, the Buddha and, you know, Goenkaji and, yeah, all of the people that, you know, have been carrying this tradition and, you know, the Sangha for making it available. Um, but, yeah, I took the first um, retreat, I think in around like 2013, and, um, you know, it was a pretty profound 
experience. And, uh, you know, I came, went back home and I tried to go about my, you know, regular life. And quickly I realized that, um, you know, it wasn't really working. Like the things I was doing before, I couldn't really continue doing. And um, about a year later, I kind of, you know, got back into some negative habits and I was not in the best place. And I was just, I need to go back to that meditation center. So I set an intention, like, okay, I'm going to go for like a month. I'm going to really stay there for this time and really do something. And uh, I stayed there for a month, and then the month passed. And I was like, you know what, let's stay for a couple more months. So I stayed for three months. And then three months passed, and I was like, okay, I need to, I need to keep going. So I stayed for six months. And um, pretty much at that point, I was just like, this is it. You know, this is like a hundred percent like what I have to do. Um, so basically, from that point on, for um, the next five years, I was just living in um, Vipassana centers. I spent uh, a good amount of time at the Vipassana Center in Massachusetts, and then I actually went to um, Israel where I met Jerry. Um, it was for a Vipassana pilgrimage. I was, you know, I went to Israel and then I went to India and, you know, Nepal. And it was all for, you know, going to different Vipassana centers. And yeah, it's just been a beautiful uh, journey. So Vipassana was your first introduction to Buddhism then? It was, yeah. It was my first introduction into anything spiritual, really. Mm. Uh, although you are Jewish. I am. And you were raised Jewish, or like was was Judaism like a big part in your uh, upbringing? Yeah, I was I was raised Jewish. Um, you know, like kind of reform. My parents were from Soviet Russia, so um, because religion was prohibited there when they came mm -hmm. to the U.S., they didn't really have too much. But you know, they were trying to get it back. So you know, just like very little things, but nothing like too serious. And so your stepfather was he. So he went to Vipassana. That was a 10-day, you said 10-day retreat. He did, yeah. yeah. It wasn't a Goenka retreat. Um, it was okay. in um, another tradition, but in um, actually one of Uba Kin's disciples, um, another one um, has another retreat center um, in Maryland, and I think he went to that one. Um, Uba Kin is a Goenka's uh, teacher. From Burma. Exactly, yeah, yeah. from Burma. And so uh, your stepfather was practicing Buddhist? Um, not really. He was just like, you know, he would do like a 30 minute meditation in the mornings, you know, just like to get centered. And my mom thought it would be a good idea <laughs> to get him like a surprise birthday present. So she just like found this retreat center just randomly and just like signed him up, <laughs> just signed him up without him knowing. And wow. It's like, this is like your birthday present. It's an initiation code. Sit still for 12 days or 10 days, totally. 12 hours a day t for 10 days. Just sit still. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I would. That's the best birthday present ever. <laughs> uh -huh. That's cool. I, I feel that. I, I guess I can imagine if you weren't really like um, akin to what the practice was, that could be a little crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> did, so he, he came away from it having a very positive experience, obviously, because that's what inspired you to go. Well, yeah, yeah, I think he had a positive experience. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So one th one thing, like when I hear when I hear you say that you spent several months doing Vipassana at a Vipassana center, uh, you know, I've only done I've done three or four courses. I'd have to pause for a second and really reflect about it. But 
uh, you know, it's been a practice I've had in many ways daily for years. I first did it in 2011, uh, so coming up on 10 years of doing it and had been doing meditation before. Uh, but that's powerful, that fact that you've done several months of living in a Vipassana center and being like fully immersed in the discipline of it. That's something that I remember the first time I went and all the times afterwards as well. I was like, oh my God, I would love to just hmm. completely go into this. At the same time, uh, you and I kind of live in an ashram. We we do live in an ashram. It's a very unique ashram because it's like uh, intertribal, meaning that we incorporate many different traditions. And uh, I also think that part of the aspect of like the ashram that we live in here is that it's sort of catered on a certain level to each individual, which mm -hmm. is really amazing. Because like if you're someone that's more geared towards Vipassana meditation, you can do that. Or if you're someone that's more geared towards Hatha yoga, you can do that. If you're someone that's just like finds themselves fully in music or art and that sort of way of relating to the spirit, you can approach it from that perspective. And then there, we have certain practices that we do gather collectively quite often to do together. Uh, but I have to say, like, there was something about just, like, the, the potency of sitting for 12 hours a day. There's something that that connects you to that is, like, it feels like you're a monk. So, basically, in a sense, you have kind of lived as a monk in a more traditional, like, Buddhist sense for a period of time. And can you just share a little bit about, like, what that is like? Because uh i'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this have done all kinds of practices and things but how many of those people have actually like lived like a monk for a mm -hmm. period of time and i know that everyone i think on some degree who goes into these practices at least at one point probably has the thought oh it would be uh it'd be kind of cool to like for a period of time you know be like a renunciate and maybe i'm projecting because i'm i kind of think like that but <laughs> but uh nonetheless uh if you could share just like what is it what is it like to to live as where you're fully in the discipline of a very ancient tradition like that in a Buddhist respect for um, months on end. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to share. Um, it's very peaceful. You know, at a certain point, everything, you know, from the outside world just kind of drops away. And the entire life just begins to get focused on, you know, the Dhamma and practice and, you know, your own practice. And then when you're not practicing, I mean, you're always practicing, but when you're not in intensive retreat, but you're living there, then you're supporting others who are in retreat. So it's either you're, um, you know, doing the retreat yourself and meditating, um, you know, the entire day. It's really, you know, 10 to 12 hours of, like, formal sitting meditation. But really, you get to a place, you know, where you're trying to meditate 24 hours, you know, a day. Just every waking moment and every sleeping moment, too. Um, so it just becomes a continuous string of just, you know, consciousness and, you know, not losing that string and just moving through life um, in that way. Um, and then when you're not doing that, you're just, all of your energy goes to, you know, serving and cooking food for, you know, the meditators to make sure they have a good retreat, you know, to make sure that 
you cook the broccoli to the perfect consistency so it's soft enough <laughs> so it's not difficult for them to chew and digest so they can have a good meditation <laughs> you know and to like clean everything and make it so spotless so you know especially the floor because meditators um especially experienced when they're trained to only look you know a few feet in front of their feet so they don't get distracted by anything external so when you think about that you realize you need to have a clean floor and you know just really that changes your life in a really profound way um everything drops away i remember in the very beginning you know before i kind of i was maybe maybe like you know just a couple months in i was walking around the meditation centers and it was um in a between course period so in between retreats there's a three-day period where you know we clean the entire center and we get everything ready for the next batch of meditators to come and i lost my phone and I was just like, oh, no, like, I lost my phone. And I was, like, running around, walking, like, trying to find it everywhere. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Like, where's my phone? And then I was outside, and I just, like, kind of, like, I was like, wait. And I just, like, looked up at the stars. <laughs> and I was like, wait, I don't need a phone. <laughs> I'm just here, like, in this, my life is living in this meditation center. Like, I don't need a phone, like, at all. There's nothing, like, that I'm working on or that I'm doing or like like outside of this place or anyone that I need to communicate with like I'm just like 100% with all of my being here and it was just like such a profound peace that just like went through my entire being and you know that's really you know the way of you know the monk of just being totally present and you know it's such a beautiful you know practice Amazing. So I, I like what you said. The first, the very first thing you said was that it was really peaceful. I think uh, that resonates a lot with me. I think that, that just my 10 days there was like, that's really what I connected to. I remember uh, I was doing one down in Delaware, which has a nice tiny center in 2014. And it was snowing on like the fourth or fifth day. And I the previous day was just been really difficult. You know, there's always that period where you, where you first get there and you're like, oh, it's going to be amazing. You know? I'm going to have visions or something like that. The first guy I ever, the first guy I ever told me about Vipassana when I was in India was like, yeah, I was expecting to have like visions. And he was like, you know, I had smoked DMT and I think it's going to be kind of like that. And then I went and it was just like really difficult and very humbling. <laughs> but uh, anyway. and, and sometimes it's like that. That's true. Sometimes it is like so that. So you never know. You That's really true. never know what to expect. That is true. And uh, <laughs> uh, we, um, I remember the third day had been like very difficult. I mean, because you're sitting there for people who haven't done the practice of the boss, and I've talked about it on this podcast quite a bit because uh, it's very dear to my heart. But there's moments where you're sitting and like it is just painful. Mm. Like it is like, whoa, this is. And then you realize like not only is it painful right now, but you have like seven more days of this. And there's not really much else that you're going to be doing <laughs> except sitting with that. <laughs> but uh what's really beautiful about it is like you experience these transitions where yeah, it's excruciatingly painful, but then by sitting with that pain there comes this tremendous uh breakthrough and transformation into this 
profound peace that's so simple and ordinary. And I remember on the fourth day after the very difficult day, just sitting and watching the snowfall. And it was like just watching all the parts of myself of wanting to get somewhere, to become someone, to accomplish something, just falling away from me, just like the snow falling. That was my, that's my poetic rendition of it. Mm. And it's being like, wow, you know, just to be here in this place of uh, serenity after having experienced quite a bit of turmoil from the day before, I felt very complete inside. And I think that, you know, and as you go on through the course, usually that just continues to deepen. And even late in the course, and I would imagine many years into the practice, uh, even from people who are very seasoned with the, the technique and the tradition have very difficult periods where there's a lot of pain. But that peace, it just seems to deepen as you go further into the tradition and the practice. But uh, what I w am wondering is, given that, what made you uh, not leave necessarily, but start to kind of look into other types of practices and, on a sense, find your way here? What got me to do you, that? Well, kind of like, what is it that you were there? I mean, and what you're describing, it's it sounds very beautiful. Like, you're serving people. You know, it's not a selfish practice. It's It's completely focused around service. And then also you are very deep in the discipline, which is bringing you tremendous peace and you're leaving behind the outside world. You know, it sounds like a pretty ideal situation in a lot of ways, but then obviously, and you, and you went very deep into it cause you were there for months and years for years. Yeah. Right. So, uh, then you wound up here though. So I'm just wondering what was it, what was like the transition there and what kind of led you to feel like, Oh, there's something else that I'm looking for in that this is not the end route because some people do just i think become teachers of that tradition and then that's their life and that's their path i'm just curious for you like what led you over here yeah sure um it's a really great question and we can definitely talk a lot about that um so i was at the um you know various Cuenca centers and you know just really going deep in that practice for um say five five years and, um, you know, it was a tremendous growth on, you know, a lot of levels, um, you know, for my own meditation practice, for my own discipline, for, you know, service to others, and karma yoga, um, you know, just overall, a lot of cleaning happened and a lot of progress happened. And, um, you know, at the same time, the Goenka tradition, you know, the beauty of this specific, um, you know, tradition of, you know, Vipassana meditation is that it's geared towards, um, you know, the householder, somebody who, you know, has, a, a, you know, a life that they live in the, you know, non-meditation world, you know, maybe has a family, kids, um, you know, a job, you know, different, you know, artistic aspirations and this um, specific school of meditation was created with the intention of supporting in a very deep way people like that and you know it's really meant to complement you know one's um, you know life so they you know do maybe one or two Vipassana retreats a year and you know have a daily practice of you know one to two hours a day um, 
but it's not really meant to be a practice for a monastic. Um, you know, a monk is someone who fully devotes their entire being, you know, to the path and to the practice and, um, you know, they fully renounce everything. And, you know, th this tradition wasn't really, you know, geared for that. Um, it actually goes back to, you know, um, to Burma, um, or Myanmar, which actually, um, you know, is having a really, the country's having a very difficult time right now with, mm -hmm. um, you know, a revolution um, that they're having. So my heart goes out to, you know, all of the, you know, Burmese and, you know, to the freedom that they're, you know, really fighting for and the Dhamma that they hold so dear in their hearts that you can see, you know, through their actions, you know, the people of peace who are really protesting and, you know, peaceful ways and, you know, doing it in such a Dhammic way. So my heart really um, goes out to them. And, you know, maybe something really beautiful will come of this because what actually happened is, um, you know, in the early 1900s, um, you know, right as World War, I forget if it was World War One or World War Two, but when the British began to occupy Burma, um, there was fear that because of, you know, um, you know, colonization, that the, um, the culture of Burma and the Dhamma would be lost, you know, because of the, um, you know, westernization. So, you know, at that time, the Vipassana practice was really passed down from monk to monk, you know, teacher to student. And it wasn't really widely practiced by, um, you know, householder. It wasn't, you know, all the householders really supported the monks. They would, you know, give alms, you know, they would feed the monks, they would donate, they would, you know, pray, um, you know, bow down to them and really respect them. But most people wouldn't really practice meditation and only the monks did. But at that time period, because of like the, you know, the danger, um, this one monk, Ledi Saida, saw that the Dhamma needs to spread. This is the time that, you know, the Dhamma can't just be reserved for monks and nuns and that it needs to spread to the householder. So he was the first monk who, you know, trained and actually, um, you know, passed down his legacy, um, you know, to a lay teacher. Um, and, you know, he had lots of other, you know, monk teachers that he also passed down his, um, you know, teachings to that were authorized to teach, but he was the first monk to really pass down authority to teach Vipassana to a layperson, and it totally, um, you know, began a revolution in the Dhamma, mm. and this started spreading to, you know, lay people started practicing this, and they started getting benefit, and they started realizing that they can live their life. They're not ready to become monks, but they can totally live their life and get tremendous peace you know, and happiness from practicing the Dhamma. And this started spreading, you know, it started spreading slowly, slowly. Sayataji, um, you know, then had a student called Sayaji Ubakin, and it started spreading more. And finally, um, you know, Sayaji Ubakin met Goenkaji, and um, from Goenkaji, um, you know, he was really the one who was 
attributed in a lot of ways to spreading it around the world. And, you know, he took it out of Burma and brought it to India. And, um, you know, from India, it started spreading all over and went to the United States. And now it's practically, you know, almost every country. Um, you know, there's over, over 200 Vipassana centers around the world. Every single one of those Goenka Vipassana centers, um, more precisely. And, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have done these retreats, you know, just normal people who wouldn't have ever heard of this. Um, all thanks to what happened, um, you know, because of Lady Sayada and when the British were occupying Burma. So it's a really good example of how something really beautiful can happen, you know, from a really dark time. Mm. So I really <laughs> pray that, you know, some really powerful light comes from what's happening right now in um, Burma. But, um, yeah, so that's like a really good background to kind of like what shaped the practice and what shaped the tradition. And it's really, really beautiful, you know, the intention behind it and it's helping so many people. Um, but for me, I was at a place and I was kind of like this my whole life where I just kind of felt like I just wanted to go all the way. Like I didn't want to just like, you know, have one foot in a practice and one foot in a normal life. Right. I just like, I was like, okay, if like God exists, which I don't know at that point, I was like, I didn't really believe in anything. But if God does exist, like, I don't understand why some people just like, you know, pray a little bit or like go a little bit to church or <laughs> to temple. Like if he's really there, like I'm going to fully devote every part of my like being to that. And, you know, when I realized that there's something really special happening in the universe and that there is something there, then I decided that I'm dedicating my, you know, every ounce of, you know, energy and blood and, you know, flesh that I have to this practice. And I got so much out of the practice, but after five years, there was just certain limitations um, that the nature of this tradition had, you know, and it didn't really allow me to move as fast as I wanted. So that kind of, you know, got me interested in looking into other places and um, there are lots of monastic traditions as well. They're not nearly as widespread, and you really have to look for them. Um, but there are some very, very special traditions who really allow you, um, even as a householder, like you don't have to become a monk, but they allow you to really tap into that, you know, opportunity where you can just devote everything and just, you know, run as fast as you can and you know, just go as deep as you, you know, as your, you know, heart allows you to. So, you know, that's kind of what I decided to do. And I, you know, I left the Vipassana Center on really beautiful terms. Um, at that point, I was working there. So I was like one of the staff members. I was one of the staff volunteers who was living off site. You know, I was living like um, we had a house right next door to the Vipassana Center where me and a few of the other staff members, um, you know, we lived there. And I would go to the Vipassana Center every day and, you know, I was doing registrations. So I was talking to, you know, lots of people every day, answering their questions about the retreat. I was, you know, basically really helping to run the center at that point and also doing retreats at the same time. 
But um, so I, you know, I had really beautiful friendships and relationships with, you know, the teachers there and the facilitators. And I really, you know, I said exactly what my intentions are and like why I'm feeling this way. And everyone was extremely supportive and extremely happy for me. And yeah, I, I um, left and I went to to Nepal, where the Buddha was born, and there's a really beautiful meditation center in Lumbini, um, which is the town where the Buddha was born, and um, there's a meditation center there called Pandita Rama um, in the Mahasi Sayada tradition, and that's where, you know, I kind of transitioned from the Goenka Vipassana to, um, to that, and, you know, that was also a very profound experience, and then that led me to um, after that, kind of, I just felt like, and I could go more into that retreat later if we want to. Um, that's a separate topic of its own. But um, yeah, kind of like, I just felt like something shifted in my being, like something just completely shifted where certain strings and certain knots that were tied and that were t- like everything just got untied. And after that retreat, I was just like, I just felt like a completely blank canvas. And I was just like such a blank canvas where I didn't even feel the need to like, I need to do Vipassana meditation like every day. Like I just, even that like completely dropped away. And I was just like completely present in the moment, like just so happy. And I was just feeling from spirit that, like there's something coming, you know, there's like, you know, there's something really special that's coming. And I just felt so open and, um, you know, when I got back to the United States, I was, um, one of my good friends from the Vipassana center, um, allowed me to stay in his house for a month. Um, I was actually, um, He's a caretaker for an elderly Vipassana meditator. Um, and I, he wanted to take a 30-day retreat in California, so he asked me if I could stay there and caretake while he goes to do the 30-day retreat. And I was like, that's incredible. You know, it's a perfect transition time. I just got back. So I was there for 30 days just watching Fred Stubbs. Shout out to Fred, who's an incredible, incredible being. He's, you know, maybe in his 70s and he's been meditating since he was 20 and he's just a very special character. You're very dear to my heart. And um, yeah, I was just very open and I just wanted to catch up with our good friend Adrian, who I met in Israel as well and just kind of see where he's at, what he's doing. I just wanted to share it with him about my retreat experience, see where he's at. And he was like, well, you know what? Like the farm at the Golden Drum, they're actually looking for interns right now. I was like, oh, oh, cool. And then like maybe a few days later, I was on the phone with uh, Aiden, who's part of the you know farm team here. And um, like a week or a few days after that, I was on the phone with Chris, Z, Aiden, and Sarah, all interviewing me for the farm. And I've never really worked on a farm before. I've never, you know, done any of this stuff. But I just felt just called. I just felt guided. And, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks later, I was here. So I was like, yeah, here I am. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, 
Uh, excellent, man. Okay, so what you said a lot of things there. One one thing that kind of came to me uh, as you were talking about the history of Vipassana was this thing that Maestro Domingo, uh, the teacher of our current teacher, Maestro Manuel, talks about there. He says, like, at this period in time, the buffet is open. This idea that, like, all these ancient traditions, these uh, practices that are from thousands of years that have been kept in secret are now at this period in time in the Aquarian age is coming out and suddenly we all have access to it and how incredible it is. And I think Vipassana is, is just a wonderful, um, wonderful way for someone that is like searching for something deeper to like get exposed to that, uh, lifestyle of like living like a monk of, of a feeling of what is it actually like to like really seek what you were saying like if god really exists i want to be fully de in devotion to that if someone has this inkling of like a spiritual calling towards like you know the mystery and they want to have a a deeper connection to that i think vipassana is just a wonderful way to do it because of the accessibility like you were talking about it's all over the world it's free and uh you can just go it's 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 that simple it's not like you have to be a specific devotee of a lineage for many years you can just go and then and then what's wonderful about it is is how it's really just formulated around the natural science of what's happening inside of you it's not based on dogma belief systems uh it's not rooted in a lot of things that have been pitfalls for major religions which is a big reason why i personally gravitated towards it and it's it's funny because we're talking about god because like in Buddhism, in a lot of ways, God's not really important. Uh -huh. You know, it's just funny because that's that's what got me attracted to Buddhism was this idea of like rejecting this. What do you call like mono the monotheistic religion, like mm -hmm. the guy up in the sky with the angry finger, like <laughs> like that. That's I don't really perceive God to be like that, and uh, having you know, an entire ancient tradition that's formulated around, like, the question of whether or not God exists is just not important. Like, that's so profound to me. I think th I think that's just amazing. And uh, this kind of is an interesting question to ask is, is when you, what what kind of, like, got you in touch with this idea of of God, I mean, just had a. I never asked you that. It's it's something you generally maybe don't ask people at ashrams. You just assume everyone everyone's all about God at ashrams. Mm. And for the record, uh, my philosophy teacher in high school, she, I think she had a good definition of God, which was like she's like it's kind of like gravity. <laughs> it's like gravity. You know, it's not like some guy there. It's like gravity. <laughs> and that that to me, I was thinking about this when I was running the other day. I was like, that's a really good actually way to put it it's more just like a presence or like a force or something like that uh that you can come in contact with but just curious for you personally what uh because you said that you came to vipassana because of your stepfather mm -hmm. uh but what kind of got you into just spirituality in general or or like this quest towards understanding this force of gravity that i'm calling it wow well i mean before vipassana i really wasn't or at least I didn't think I was on any spiritual track. Um, you know, I was really, you know, having a hard time in life. And I was always, I guess, a person of extremes. You know, I would just go very extreme into everything I would do. And then very quickly learn that that's not making me happy. And then I would go to something else. 
and it was just like a pattern, you know, just like ever since I was a little kid, just like, and it, it got me really like miserable, you know, because like a lot of times I was searching in all of like, you know, very hedonistic places and, you know, drugs and, uh, you know, just, I was just searching for intensity. It was just searching for something. I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't like, you know, give you the answer. And, um, you know, I, I ended up, you know, doing, um, psychedelic mushrooms actually when I was 17 and that, you know, it was probably my first spiritual, um, experience. Um, up before that point, I was doing lots of different drugs, you know, like alcohol and, you know, smoking, you know, pot, but then also just like, you know, painkillers and, you know, anti-anxiety and anything I could really get my hands on and not in a healthy way. It was very, um, you know, it was going down a very bad trajectory and, you know, I'm very grateful to the mushroom medicine that, you know, I didn't continue, but my drug dealer that I would normally get all my stuff from usually, Hey, I have these mushrooms. (laughs) And I was like, sure. Yeah. Sounds great. (laughs) And, um, I took the mushrooms in the forest with, you know, a couple of my friends and it was just like, I just saw, like, I just came out of my body and I just saw, like, I had, like, a Christmas carol experience where I just, like, <laughs> visited my past, I visited my present, and I visited my future. And I realized the trajectory I was on was not a good trajectory. And that moment, after that experience, just all drugs, like, lost a complete appeal to me. I just didn't oh. want to do it. I just didn't want you know, and I still did it a little bit after that, but, like, that was the pinnacle point of my, you know, drug use, and it totally, you know, kind of fixed that. And then, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I'm in college. Like, this is before I go to Vipassana. I um, ended up just getting my hands on some DMT, and that was also another, you know, pretty powerful spiritual experience. Um, it totally just destroyed my ego and... You know, it it got me to see that, wow, maybe there is something out there. You know, but I would always kind of come back from those experiences. Like, I would feel like I I witnessed something really profound and, like, something amazing. But also another part of the being would be like, oh, well, that's just, like, the drug. Or that's just, like, the, you know, the psychedelic experience. But when I started, you know, doing Vipassana, and, you know, I kind of initially... I wasn't going to Vipassana because I was like, I want this super spiritual experience. But in my mind, I was just like, wow, that's so cool. Like you can get high in meditation and like, (laughs) it's like a super like intense thing. Like I want to do it. Like I can do this. Like I wasn't, I had no idea what was coming. I had no idea that this was going to be a spiritual thing. I just thought it was really (laughs) cool. Um, And then when I started doing it, it just, like, it was a profound shift. And, um, you know, that's when I really knew, you know, that's when I really stepped into the, you know, spiritual world. And, you know, it was, yeah, like, full full immersion rather than just, like, kind of, like, dipping your foot in. But it was just, like, a fully, fully diving in, like, you know. And then you can't, you know, undo that, you know. It's like once you see that there's no going back you know so definitely and like this is this is i think something that 
pretty much everyone who's probably listening to this already knows but it's it's always really beautiful when i hear how someone is like i took mushrooms <laughs> and i experience i have the experience of what mushrooms provide which is i mean it's it's a really interesting thing on some level too to talk about it because i was l- looking at one thing where they're like some articles like coming out of the psychedelic closet like it's this thing of like okay do i acknowledge that like i had this experience but then you look at what's happening right now in like the mainstream world in the united states okay like mushrooms have been legalized for therapy in oregon and i think it's on the bill in florida and hawaii as well and all these things are becoming legalized right now because obviously i mean you just can't deny that these are not drugs in the sense of intoxicants or things that bring you to a stupor these are as you said they're medicines they're things that open you and provide cathartic experiences that allow us to process who we are in connection to the larger whole and then what's amazing is like that sets you on a path of like super deep meditation and introspection and a desire to be in service to help others so just to acknowledge that because it's funny just like even as we talk about it you know it's a funny thing where i've always been like okay like how much do i get into a conversation about you know my own experiences with things like mushrooms and stuff like that because it can go in directions where people have immediately will close the door and they'll label you as like an addict or something like that crazy or uh there's all kinds of negative things affiliated with it but just to acknowledge it's beautiful for instance Mm. right now johns Mm -hmm. hopkins doing a study with like end of life uh patients and finding that like psilocybin is something that provides tremendous peace and perspective as to what's happening in their process so uh thank you to mushrooms mm. oh, <laughs> thank you mushrooms. i mean how can we not make mushrooms right uh, uh and so then what's what's cool is that you actually uh are involved in the cultivation not of psychedelic mushrooms but you're in the uh, massive cultivation of not massive but you have you cultivate lion's mane and cordyceps and blue oysters cordyceps yeah i did cultivate some cordyceps not currently but once we get our lab back up definitely plan on it um but actually interestingly enough so right now i'm a mushroom farmer um at flowering sun farm but when i was living at the vipasta center i just also fell in love with mushrooms because i just became so aligned with nature and i just started i you know before vipassana i hated nature I hated like you know the you hated nature. I didn't like nature. I've never heard anyone say I was just like before. I was just like <laughs> all these trees are the same and like there's bugs and I just I don't like it. I just want to stay inside and where did you grow in, up? In New Jersey, in the suburbs. Where in New Jersey? Fairlawn. Okay. Bergen County. I, I was in, I was uh, in New Jersey growing up for a period of time, but I, I always loved nature, so we were, must have grown up in different towns. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. It was my mind. You know, my mind was very dirty. <laughs> but I started doing Vipassana, and I started realizing how beautiful it is, and I started being outside all the time, and I started looking down, and I started seeing these mushrooms, and I was like, I can eat these, and I loved cooking, and I would forage them, and I just became so fascinated, and then... I just started researching and I found that I can grow them in my house. So I started growing mushrooms at the Vipassana Center um, manager house when I was oh, wow. living off site there. <laughs> and they, I be, you know, I had like a tent set up and I had them help me like build everything. So that was kind of like my first also dip into uh, mushroom cultivation. Huh. And I had no idea that when I came to this farm, I was going to be able to start a mushroom cultivation, you know, business. And um, it just kind of 
magically aligned in that way too. And, you know, Chris was even saying, he's like, yeah, we brought you here so you could, you know, start the mushrooms. And that's why, you know, you're here to bring that. And it's interesting. How did I start doing that at the Vipassana Center? You know, it's like, where did these seeds really come from and how it's all connected is so beautiful. Well, it's funny, too, because you were saying that mushrooms kind of led you into like a spiritual awakening, which on some level led you to Vipassana, which led you back to mushrooms. (laughs) Which then led you here, and now you're doing. Now, now you're cultivating medicinal mushrooms. Yeah, it's a funny thread. It's that's amazing. Cool. Yeah. I, I think that's a very mushroom situation. I mean, if you think about the nature of mushrooms, right, where it's like you have, and I might get all the terminology wrong, but you have like these uh, mycelium networks, and then these spores that go out, mm-hmm. and they like and just flood. And there's something about, I don't know, like there's like a, a pollination. It's like when when one takes a psychedelic mushroom, it's like you become like. A spore of that consciousness that just goes out and mm-hmm. you're in service to something that sometimes you don't even really fully understand uh, we think we're the ones cultivating the mushrooms but in reality they're totally cultivating us you know they're transforming us and you know we're just it's in service to the mushrooms definitely so just to uh, uh, to backtrack here a moment to meditation uh, and you were you lived in Burma for a period of time specifically in a traditional monastery correct well i was in burma for about a month and then i was in nepal for um a couple of months okay there was two when when i initially said i went to the meditation center after um uh, the vipassana center i went to nepal um and i went to the lumbini to the vipassana center in lumbini right that's the first place i actually did vipassana at myself oh cool yeah, yeah it's a beautiful the place. lotus pond in the center mm. and everything yeah mm. there was actually a, the vipassana instructor uh or not the instructor he wasn't the, the teacher but he was one of the servants there but he was like the main guy he was very like he like a zen master type guy really like right to do but it was funny he always wore this um dayton ohio square dancing shirt (laughs) (laughs) but he was he was nepalese i don't know it was just very funny Uh you know he probably had no context for what the shirt meant Mm -hmm. but i would always like be meditating look up and see him wearing that shirt (laughs) (laughs) just to uh deviate with uh, some side humor here but uh so uh, you were you went to Lumbini, but I, I remember you had told me in past conversation that you like you took yeah. robes or, or there, there was yeah. something you did. So like after this. Yeah. the retreat um, in Lumbini, I um, I was initially going for um, a sixty day retreat. So I like planned. I was like, okay, I'm gonna go because in this retreat center you can go for as long as you want. Um, they will allow you to go for a month. They will allow you to go for a year. For two years, you'll have your own little like private kuti which is kind of like a little cabin and um they have you know it's also donation based the beautiful food and uh you know everyone who's there at this center is like it's geared towards more you know experienced meditators people who've really you know been practicing for a while and really just want to take their practice to the next level and um you know they still have room for students who've like never meditated before they allow people to just come for you know a week and just try it out but um the center is run by um two monastics one monk and one nun um saida vivekananda is the monk and i forget the nun's name um but um it's a very very serious practice um it's a little bit different than the goenka center you were talking about this idea of 
you had gone when you went over there there was it was like you became like a clean slate mm-hmm. this is the place where you yeah. experienced that okay can yeah can you talk a little bit about that yeah sure um well the practice is um you know in the Goenka tradition it's all sitting meditation um, that's really what they focus on and it's all sensation based uh, vipassana there's actually different kinds of vipassana um but the practice here included all of the types of vipassana and um basically you would alternate between walking meditation and um sitting meditation so you would walk for an hour sit for an hour walk for an hour sit for an hour Um, The schedule was much more kind of like loose, meaning like it wasn't like in the Goenka Center, it's very disciplined and they hold your hand and they make sure you're at the meditations and like everyone's following the same exact schedule. But this place, it's more of like you need to do it yourself. You need to create, they they give you like a recommendation schedule, but no one's going to check in on you. Um, You you really have to be self-motivated and really, you know, keep your practice and everyone there is, and that's why it's so powerful, because everyone there is really just holding it to such a high standard. Um, so you do your walking meditation, um, observing your, um, you know, your feet moving, and you would walk maybe like 10 feet in one direction, and then you'd turn around and you'd walk back the other 10 feet, and you're moving extremely slowly the entire time that you're there like so slowly that to walk 10 feet might take you like a minute you know like like I wish I could somehow show it on the podcast to the listeners how slow you're moving but like like that's how fast I'd be moving my arms 10 feet a minute is a good visualization it's very slow Uh like very slow and that's not just for the walking meditation, but that's for everything that you're doing. You're mo- you're moving extremely slowly. And, um, you know, you're doing the walking meditation for an hour, observing your feet. And then immediately after that, you go and you sit down and you start your sitting meditation. And in the sitting meditation, you start with um, observing your belly rising and falling so instead of observing your um, nostrils as in the Goenka tradition when you're doing your breathing um, the breath going in the breath going out you start observing your abdomen the breath coming in and the abdomen rising and the breath going out and the abdomen falling um, and it's a, e- easier to follow because the abdomen's a much larger um, you know area so the mind doesn't get as sharp because it's a larger area, but it gets much more concentrated because it's easier to keep your attention there. Um, but then also the teaching, in addition to that, is you keep your attention there, but then as soon as something else arises in your being, whether it's a thought, whether it's an itch on your left knee, whether it's a pain on your you know shoulder, um, a sensation, whatever it is, you bring your full attention to whatever arises and you dive into it. You observe the three char- one of the three characteristics, which is anicca, anatta, or dukkha, impermanence, um, suffering, and um, change. Or, I'm sorry. Dissatisfaction? Uh, would be du- not, not I. Yeah, dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. Yeah. Um, anatta is that there is no I. 
and um, anicca is constant change. And those are the kind of the three characteristics in, um, you know, Buddhist mm-hmm. um, teachings. And those are everything in life, you know, contain one of those three. Um, and to be able to observe that in a completely detached way in meditation allows you to really pierce through um, to some true understanding of the nature of reality. So whatever arises in your being has that characteristic and you're observing it with that kind of intention. And then once you see that and once you truly see it, you can detach from whatever's happening because a lot of times something happens in your being, especially when you're meditating because it's trying to distract you or it's trying to pull you away from your object of meditation. And a lot of the times it's something that um, some past conditioning or sankara, you know, that you have, that you've created in the past, and it's arising, trying to get your mind to roll into those defilements, but you're saying, no, I'm going to keep practicing, I'm going to fight this, and you, you know, put all of your mindfulness into that, and, you know, after that, you know, you go back to your object of concentration, which is the abdomen rising, falling, rising, falling, and then something else will come up, and you go fully into that, And, you know, that's just at the beginning stages. But then after a while, um, everything just kind of starts happening, like, fully naturally. Like, things just start arising in your entire body and in your mind in a very, like, continuous flow. It just, like, one thing after another, after another, after another. Almost kind of like, like, if you could imagine, like, like a river flowing you know, and the river is just flowing through you and all of these things, depending on whatever conditioning, are just arising and it's, you know, all of your sense doors are potentially engaged, like sights and sounds and tastes and pain and, you know, different emotions and all of these things are arising and you're taught in this practice to observe all of them. So not just sensations on your body, but also thoughts and emotions and, you know, everything that you think is you everything that makes up who we think i am gets you know in the spotlight and we're just taking it all apart or who am i really you know and it's a very profound practice you know, especially for to do it for a while for a long time um and the walking meditation serves really good to um kind of it, it, it serves as a really nice shift. Um, sitting for a while can be difficult, and there's certain things that arise that make it challenging, and walking meditation really counters a lot. So walking meditation can really give you um, some you know grounding. It can really uh, provide you with extra energy. Um, you know, it can, if you're like feeling tired and sluggish and you're falling asleep in your sitting meditation, a lot of times it's not because you're actually tired, but it's because you have some defilements of the mind. So doing some walking meditation can seriously help you break through that. Um, additionally, when you're doing walking meditation, the object of meditation is much um, more dense. It's not as subtle, so it's easier to focus on. So if your concentration, if you're having difficulty with concentration and you do walking meditation, it can really get you, um, you know, in there. So I found it was really nice to kind of break it up and it just totally integrates together. And um, additionally, we would meet with the teacher every day. One day we would meet with the monk and one day we would meet with the nun. 
and they were very engaged in each student's practice. So they weren't just kind of checking in, like, how are you? How's it going? That's one thing with Vipassana courses I went to, I always found kind of dissatisfying. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, it's my mom, the teacher. And they're like, oh, just keep observing your senses. Remain equanimous. <laughs> keep trying. Keep going. That's it. It's like, that's all I ever got mm-hmm. out of all the times I went. I was like, okay. No, yeah. It wasn't. But, you know, anyways, just to share that. <laughs> but, but go on. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, and it's like, um, but you know when you'd go up to your private interviews with the teachers they actually they had like these huge notebooks like you know like pretty large size notebooks and they had a profile of you specifically in the notebook and every time you would talk with them they would write very extensive notes and they would ask you like in details about your practice and where you are and what you're experiencing and you'd actually have to keep a journal and in that journal, the only thing you're allowed to write is what you're experiencing in your meditation. So after you'd sit for an hour, you would write down what you're going through. And you'd bring that journal with your interview to the teacher, and they would ask you very specific things. And based on what you tell them, they kind of map it out. You know, in their, um, in their mind, they map out where you are. Um, that's another thing about um, Theravada Buddhism is that there's a lot of maps out there. It's a very, like, you know, there's so much theory and, you know, it's very pragmatic. There's, like, step one, step two, step three. It's like you're going to experience this in your meditation and then you're going to experience all these pains and then all these pains are going to dissolve and then you're going to feel all this fire and anger and fear and it's going to be the worst thing ever and then you're going to get to this equilibrium of peace. Do you find those maps to be accurate? I always have like this skepticism, <laughs> especially like, you know, with certain uh, Buddhist things, because like meditation, I feel is such a personal thing where one person can meditate and have this experience and the other person can have that experience. I mean, it's just so contingent on the individual. I'm just wondering, do you, do you find those maps to be accurate or do you think like what's been your experience of that? I think it all depends on the map and on the person. And I feel like it's, they're just like teachers, you know, it's like each person, like someone came up with that map because of their own personal experience or a teacher who's taught many students. And if you resonate with that, if you connect with that, you may have very similar experiences to that. Some people, it may be very harmful, may not be helpful at all. Mm -hmm. People who have a very intellectual mindset and like really go, deep into that and who won't who'll get distracted by it so it's very cautionary um for me personally it helped me tremendously um i was really stuck before and then once i started understanding these maps um i started to find out where i was stuck and where i needed to focus on it's kind of like astrology almost in a way um but it is it could be dangerous and actually in that monastic tradition they don't share with you about the maps like they don't the monks know all this information and they read about it and they actually map out the students but they don't share it and they actually get kind of upset if you like bring that up and they got upset at me (laughs) because i knew all of the maps i knew all of like the poly terminology just from reading or from or from where did you get exposed to that at tons of reading um in the goenka center me and we had a group of friends we were super into that like towards my last kind of like you know like maybe half a year there we were really you know just studying that and you know we were really observing changes in ourselves while we were doing it so right. it was a big motivation um 
but these maps also kind of serve as a, as a, you know, like, wow, I can really do this, you know, because these maps aren't just like, yeah, you're going to get like deep peace and, you know, but like these maps say like you will get enlightened, like you can achieve these states of, you know, non-states of you know, nirvana and it was just very motivational and that motivation is really like one of the major keys, the faith and, you know, the willpower to succeed and anything is really what you need um it's really interesting if i can cut you off here like yeah. so just how different like we like for instance talking about like enlightenment nirvana as like an act of like willpower and then there's maps and things like this to it because then like i've been listening a lot to uh robert thurman talk about tibetan buddhism you know robert thurman i think i've heard i don't know him, no. i've been talking a lot about him on this podcast he's cool he actually lives in woodstock where you oh yeah where you hang out a lot cool. <laughs> I, I i reached out to him uh i was uh, i haven't heard back he's very he's pretty old he was as to my knowledge he's like the first ordained tibetan monk who's american hmm. he, he was ordained and he was there for like six years or something and he's very good friends with the dalai lama and he started the tibet house and stuff but Listening to his teachings, it seems like there, there's a lot of conversation just about, like, coming into self-actualization, not so much as, like, like it, it's weird, right? Because on some level, it's like you get there, but then you realize you were already there. And I think Theravada Buddhism talks about this, too. But I, what I'm com what's coming up for me, and I just want to hear your thoughts about this, is, like, sometimes with, like, maps and this idea of accomplishing somewhere and getting somewhere and, and following, like, a, a road sometimes i wonder if that creates more of an obstacle and i'm curious if if you have found that to be true just in the in the process of like not i would say getting to an end point but just like in the process of like awakening to your full capacity as what you are whatever the heck that means because i the more i walk on this path the more like these terms and concepts and end results and things have become more and more confusing to me and i'm mm. just like i'm just like i you know it's like you have these because you do go into these states i mean i've had this with vipassana and then if you've ever taken mushrooms like you've gone to certain states of like whoa like the the you can't deny like the divinity of it or mm -hmm. the profundity of it and the power of it but then it's also like it goes away and then you get frustrated because you spilled you know some juice on the floor and then someone gets angry at you and you're angry at them and you're like what was the point of that <laughs> but so that that's a that's a kind of a, a a multifaceted question let's simplify it so uh what i'm asking is like have you found on some level that like the use of maps and this idea of trying to get somewhere and like i'm going to use my willpower to activate something on some level has been a distraction or have you found it to be counter where it's really been like no this is what they're talking about has added up to what i was seeking if you can answer that yeah i mean it's a great question and again i just want to say that this is very personal you know because there's right. so many different people and for some people it may be extremely beneficial and for others it may be really harmful for yeah. me it was very beneficial because it just gave me that you know i didn't believe that i can actually achieve nirvana i didn't believe that i can get enlightened i thought that i was just meditating and it was just making me the happiest i can be and making me a really good person and I was super content with that, but I didn't kind of believe there was more. And um, that was one of the limitations I was having, um, just sub being at the Gwanga Center and just fully subscribing to that. And I was just like, yeah, this is so wonderful. Like, this is totally making me a different person. I'm so happy. This is great. But 
I didn't, I really didn't believe that I can go further. So these maps and these different teachings opened up that door, just fully opened it up and gave me the motivation to just like meditate more and to like just fully trust and like put in that needed effort. And that effort is really what started creating the changes and it just started kind of like showing the results and I just kept moving in that direction. But at the same time, it totally did create challenges because I started to get attached to mm. those ideas. And when right. I wasn't achieving those things, I would started to get really frustrated and like, I you know, go, you know, maybe getting a little neurotic and, you know, crazy. Uh. <laughs> and, but, you know, then at, at a certain point, the idea is, you know, if you put enough effort and if you do it the right way, eventually like all those things drop away too you know so eventually the maps drop away the teachers drop away everything drops away and that's kind of the path that you know i took and you know it worked for me i like what you said to start there that 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 resonated a lot with me where you're like i was just doing it because i was becoming more happy and like i was witnessing change happen in myself it wasn't like you're not trying to get somewhere it's like you're you that I, th I mean on a certain sense that is enlightenment i feel like yeah you know it's like i'm just happy i just doing this because i enjoy doing totally. this and it makes me feel good and i'm witnessing change i'm helping other people so that that that's cool and then i can i can totally see how like okay you know all of a sudden you just doing something ha that makes you feel happy it's like you want to you know experience the full depth of it and then you find like oh there are maps and things like this but that it's it's an interesting thing like what you said is how you know you can get frustrated because it's not, all of a sudden you have an expectation that comes in that prevents you from just enjoying the practice. And just for the record, I'm not opposed to maps. I think maps are cool. <laughs> the, the reason yeah. actually they don't um, talk about the maps, the teachers at the you know Panditarama Vipassana Center is because it creates those blockages. Uh, uh -huh. They specifically don't like tell students the names of these states and the maps because it really does create hindrances and it can create certain delusions and you know they found that it's not really healthy for the student to understand what the map is but they as the teacher understand and based on um where they you know see this person is in their practice they give them very practical advice on where to focus their meditation what they need to like work on what they need to focus on and um that is really what moves people forward and pushes them through and, and this is this reminds me uh what a story robert thurman told uh when he was first with one of his teachers every time he would go to sit down to meditate it was like the teacher would just show up and interrupt him because mm. the teacher didn't want him to sit down and get caught up in like the meditative practice the teacher was like no i need you to do this for me do that for me it was like a constant like um check to make sure that he was not getting ingrained into like a selfish pursuit into achieving something but rather was constantly relinquishing the self and the selfish ambitions and desires to like help others and to be thinking beyond just his own internal sphere it, it kind of reminds me what you're talking about and i just thought it was funny this idea of every your, your teacher every time you go to meditate hmm. just interrupts you and asks you to do something totally ridiculous even at late hours of the night so we're, we're interwoving segueing back between mushrooms and buddhism here's a question uh there is there's a book i haven't read it all the way through it's called zigzag zen it's about like the intersection of, of buddhism and psychedelics and how there is a history of that and i listened to a really interesting uh, podcast a couple months ago uh they're interviewing a guy named michael crowley who i think is from england and he was or ordained as a lama 
like he i think he had gone so far in the tibetan tradition that they recognized him as a lama like he had gotten to a certain degree within the practice and he was talking about these like uh initiatic tantric rites within tibetan buddhism where mushrooms are involved and he it was interesting in the conversation yeah it was interesting because he wasn't explicitly saying that he did it but he kind of was like he wasn't like yeah i was given mushrooms and then you know we did a ritual but he but he goes through like the iconography of tibetan buddhism about amrita and its use in the vedas and there's there's a lot of, of details and things that i can't really regurgitate but basically he he was saying that you know there is a this use of soma hmm. you know i think you, you probably have heard that term right from having traveled to india in the mm -hmm. Pals, in the in tradition so he's saying that this is definitely a mushroom and he was alluding to the fact very strongly that this is something that he was initiated into wow and i thought that was really interesting because that was like the first time i've ever heard of that um and i haven't read zigzag zen but i think that they talk about the intersection quite a bit but i'm just curious like as someone that has taken you know psychedelics in the past which led you into buddhism and then gone very deeply into buddhism um you know with vipassana they're very like there are no substances whatsoever they're very antithetical to that and i imagine the burmese tradition is probably the same way unless there's some secret thing that we don't know about but uh i'm just curious like what do you think about do you feel like those are two things that can reconcile um and obviously, I guess, based on what Michael Crowley said, they are in some way. But I'm just curious, what do you think about that based on your experiences and how that would play out? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting um, area. And, uh, you know, there's definitely no exceptions in the Burmese and, you know, that tradition. It's very strict with, you know, no substances at all. Um, the actual, you know, precept that the Buddha gave was to abstain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness mm. um, actually to abstain from intoxicating drinks that cause heedlessness so that's the actual precept that the buddha gave which probably implies you know alcohol or you know something like that but it doesn't really say anything about abstaining from you know things that change your perception for consciousness you know which is the opposite of heedlessness mm -hmm. um you know, if you talk to a Goenka Vipassana teacher or, you know, a classical monk, they probably would disagree with that. But that's just based on their own upbringing and their own practice. And, you know, you don't really find too many people who are very deeply involved, you know, in a Vipassana practice and are using, um, you know, psychedelics, I guess, together um, at the same time. It's something that really, I think, is you know, we, we could be on the brink of, and it's something that, you know, there's a lot of room for discovery. And, you know, it's very different to, I think, you know, take a psychedelic and then, like, do a little bit of vipassana, like, to do some meditation for a couple of hours. But, um, I mean, I think it'd be a beautiful thing to explore, you know, to do a full-on, like, silent, like, intensive retreat and maybe use different kinds of, um, you know, medicines, um, it would have to be done in a very, you know, you know, like very careful way, of course, because it could be very just doing a retreat itself is very intense without any know, substances, without any substances yeah, and doing substances without a retreat is very intense. Yeah. But I think there's so much room for potential there, you know, and yeah, I would love to 
you know, explore that, you know, if I ever get an opportunity, um, you know, to do that. I was even thinking like, you know, on the end of a 10 day retreat, they have um, on the very last day, it's called Metta Day. Mm-hmm. Metta is uh, love and kindness. So you're learning to radiate that to yourself and all beings around you. And it's a very happy and heart opening, you know, day. And it's really kind of a day where you're integrating and coming back to talking with people and, and I was just thinking, like, what if you do, you know, a 10-day retreat, and on the very last day, you have a cacao ceremony, and you drink cacao, and you're just opening up your heart, and, you know, just radiating metta on a totally another level. Like, that can be such a beautiful, like, integrated way of, you know, healing, and I think there's so much potential in that world. Um, yeah, it, it's it's funny, as we're talking about this, it's like, this is definitely going to be a conversation that's going to be if it's not already being had that's going to be had more and more and more and it's it's like a really touchy subject i think because like a lot of traditional people from both like the buddhist tradition but then i mean you're talking about cacao from so for people from the mayan tradition Mm -hmm. and then you know mushrooms are still used by you know the the aztec people mexica people in mexico uh and you know each culture has their own way of how this thing works right and then like and then for them to combine it with another tradition is like i think for them it's like it just triggers something for sure which is not necessarily um (laughs) a bad reaction on some level because it's like oh here comes this person that's not who's not from asia who's also not from mexico who's (laughs) saying that we can take mushrooms and do buddhism (laughs) and uh i mean and i'm not saying you personally i just mean like you know probably most westerners because at the same time this is like what right this is like what happened in the 60s this is like all the whole people were taking lsd and mushrooms and they went into eastern philosophy and practice but it is interesting because like while the traditional people and the traditions themselves have like i think some degree of resistance about all this stuff at the same time the buffet is open and we're not saying like the indian restaurant is open and the hunikun restaurant is open and the Mexica restaurant is open, and the Buddhist restaurant is open. We're saying the buffet is open. It's a buffet, and that's an interesting thing. Cause when you when you go to a buffet, you put on. I put personally get like spring rolls, and then I get like, <laughs> and, and I get like pizza, a little bit of everything. Yeah, some vegan this, a quesadilla, <laughs> and at the same. So, but you know, at the same time though, it's like. Uh, I guess the question that comes up for me as I say this, and I'm I'm also just kind of uh, saying this lightheartedly because it's sort of funny way to put it, but the serious question that comes up for me then is like, I wonder if, you know, a certain degree of depth can't be penetrated if you are too much multidisciplinary. And I don't actually know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Because you have gone really deep into the Buddhist practices and, and you live here where we are a more interdisciplinary tradition which embraces like you know many different facets of practices and just curious i mean having done one where it's like they're like okay you need to focus just on your abdomen for days on end (laughs) versus you know when we live here okay so we live here we're we're talking about all this stuff and then right after we're done this conversation i'm gonna go cook food and then you know okay we're gonna play music tonight uh we're going to spend time with the family with kids so there's that aspect of it going to go work on the farm you're going to grow mushrooms uh going to be involved probably in like some firewood construction i'm going to do 
some yoga later. It's like it's all over the place. But at the same time, it, it's it works too. So just you know, what do you what do you think about the difference between being like in many different pockets at once versus like okay, I'm just gonna focus on nothing but the in breath on one millimeter space under mm. my nose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like many things in life it's kind of like you know it's neither one or the other it's you know both at different times you know I feel like at certain times in life it's like one is called to do like one thing you know really really deeply and there's something really special that comes from that you know just like something that if you give all of your focus to you can get to a, a new level which otherwise you can't but then there's also times I feel where it's another type of practice to, you know, do lots of different things and to be balancing your practice in your life um, in that way. You know, at least from my experience, that's what it's been, where it's just like different phases and different shifts of life, depending on, you know, what, you know, each individual needs. So I don't think there's necessarily a right um, or a wrong way, but I definitely think there's tremendous benefits of both. Mm. I like that answer. That I think I, you know, I think that's a really good way to put it because we are all totally different things, and like some of us really might benefit from just doing one thing and sticking to that, but then another person might really like take off once they get like, you know, a mixed mash of things. I definitely don't want to be a person that just says that tradition should be open to things being intermixed because I don't think that's really like my role but uh, I I do see the world heading in that direction regardless of what anyone has to say about it if you support it or you don't it's just kind of naturally heading that way so interesting times Mm -hmm. definitely it's cool that we're in the place where we are and you know we could kind of experiment with these different worlds and these different practices that are all available it's just how fortunate are we really not just to have the dhamma and the teachings and you know teachers and but to have access to all of it you know and then just live together in community and i mean such abundance and beautiful nature and you know it's just such a beautiful life what what can you share for anyone listening about your experience living in community I think you're uh, you reached a state of enlightenment and happiness <laughs> from your vipassana meditation. Go live in community. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing, you know. It's like I'm kind of new to community. I'm here a little less than two years, and um, it's been a wonderful experience. Um, very heart opening, um, you know, f- very fully encompassing, and you know. Every single person that is in the community is your teacher, you know, in a certain way. And it works in very mystical ways. Like, you know, if you're meant to be with somebody, if they're meant to teach you something, like you guys have contrasting views or something they do that rubs you in the wrong way or something that you do that is not clean, and maybe that person will notice that and it will really rub them the wrong way and then they will be the one to tell you that. So you kind of magically get in front of those people. Like I, I ended up with my girlfriend living at Jerry and Michelle's house for, you know, like a month or something. That would be here. That would be here. <laughs> yeah. 
and then another time I was living at Shola's house, and another time I was living at the farm, and it almost seemed like for each of those experiences, there's just, like, something that, like, needed to be learned and experienced, and as soon as that was learned, it was like, okay, change of place, you get to move to a new place. What do you think the lesson was from learning with us? We got along for the, for the people <laughs> out there. I... I, I I get along with people. I don't know. Maybe you well, and Michelle hated each other. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, loved, was you. I you. loved you guys. It was so fun yeah. being here. Um, I got. I feel like I got a lot of lessons with like music and sharing my voice and just kind of not being afraid to play. I was always kind of self-conscious and still a little bit, but just playing music with you, just kind of like you were just so. Because I would always kind of see you like, oh, like Jerry is like, you know, he's playing all he's making all these cool sounds with his throat and playing all these instruments like I was always intimidated and you know but then when we would play guitar in your living room I would just kind of like just kind of all melted away and I was just like wow this is so chill mm. and um I think especially um you know this for Zan I think there was a big lesson for her because it was kind of like you know challenging for her not you know being in her house in Woodstock and like living with a lot of people and like you know we lived in a tiny room that like the walls were like paper thin and like you can hear everything um when you guys were here yeah when we were here mm -hmm. and you know it was like definitely a little challenging um you know to be a couple and to kind of not really have privacy in that way <laughs> and literally as soon as zan was like you know what i'm i i could do this like i like this like i can live here like I'm totally there. It's like, okay, now time for the next place. And then we just got moved, you know, somewhere else. So, you know, there's a lot of lessons everywhere. That's good. I, I like how you put that. Like the moment you're like, all right, I can, I, I embrace this. Then the next challenge presents itself. Yeah. You can never get too comfortable living in community. Yeah. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Cool. Well, speaking of not being able to get too comfortable living in community, uh, I have to go cook right now for the farmhouse oh <laughs> hopefully there are some mushrooms that we can eat some there uh, are some lion's mane you have extra lion's mane yeah? yes yes you can cool. have them all <laughs> <laughs> maybe we you know what i was thinking i could just take this podcast we should just um we should just extend it throughout the entire day we can just carry the microphones with us and <laughs> people could just listen into the entire day <laughs> It's not that interesting, no. It could be. <laughs> it could be if we were if we were like focusing on it. Really, okay, we're gonna like make it interesting while we go about our day. We could do it. Who I knows? Think, I think especially if you make it live, that can add That's, a oh, interesting people like that. We could have we could have people um, <laughs> like Clubhouse. You know the Clubhouse app, or or not Clubhouse, but uh, we could, uh, like a live stream. People could ask mm, questions while mm -hmm. we're doing it. Oh yeah. I don't know. This is just a strange direction my mind Things is to going think about. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, Dan, thank you for coming by. It's good to have you. Thank you for sharing all the wisdom about the meditation, about uh, your knowledge of the tradition, and thank you for being a good friend. It's great to have you, man. Thank mm. you for coming by. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly a pleasure, and, you know, it's really great to to be here and, you know, you're a great friend of mine. Love you very much. You have a very dear place in my heart. So thank you so much. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you guys for listening to Bodhi Speak. Tune in again soon. We'll keep it going. We're going to continue interviewing people who live with us here at the community because each person here is just really unique and has a really powerful story like Dan does uh, and has a lot to share from just living in this crazy container that we call a community here. So... Thank you for listening again. Take care. Peace.